We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And I have given them the words that you gave me, And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let me invite you to take your seats. Thanks, Anita. Uh, Welcome again to Resurrection Oakland. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if I have not met you yet, I would love to get to greet you and learn your name after the service. Um. We're learning, you know, as we go to this two-service thing, we're learning who the early risers are and who's, who likes to kind of take it easy in the morning. So we're glad you're here at 11 a.m. Uh, every fall, we take three weeks, three Sundays in a row, to talk about our vision as a church and why we exist here in this city. And it's an important thing to do every year, but I think it's probably more important now than it's ever been before, and here's why. God is at work in this church. Uh, There's a full room at 9 a.m., And you know that we've been going to two services to make room for more people. Uh, We had 40 people, I think, at our newcomer lunch last week. Our community groups are expanding. We need more leaders. We need more hosts. All sorts of things are happening. And it would be so easy to get caught up in all of this and to actually lose sight of why we exist, why we're here in this city. And so uh, what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks is talking about that, talking about our vision as a church. And if you're new, uh, this is what we say. We say our vision is to be a church not just for ourselves, but for the unconvinced and for the city. Uh, when, When this church, five and a half years ago, before we had a Sunday morning service, before we even had a name, uh, this church was literally 30 people meeting in somebody's home every other week to pray about and dream about starting a new church in in the city. 
That was our vision, to be a church not just for ourselves, but for the unconvinced and for the city. And that hasn't changed. That's still what we're trying to be. So as we're doing this for the next three weeks, I'm really excited because we want to expose, some of you are new, and you're not really aware of all the ministries that we're partnering with in this city. God was at work in this place long before this church ever showed up. And so we want to, uh, we want you to, we want to kind of help you become aware of these, these ministry partners that we have uh, in the city in Oakland. And the first one is City Team, which you heard Pastor Dave mentioning about. And so this is a video from City Team. Let me invite you to give your attention to the screen. There needs to be organizations like City Team because people need a place where they could see hope and see, hey, um, there are people that care about me. So I found my way to City Team uh, in 2015 as a resident of our City Team Renew program. I walked through the doors of City Team uh, broken, uh, with a crushed spirit, suicidal. As soon as I walked through the doors, I was greeted with love, uh, compassion, and um, I wasn't used to that. It, it made me feel at home, and I felt like, hey, I could actually do this. I could change my life. You know, I've always been a believer, but I didn't know how it looked to, to truly walk with God until I, I went to City Team, and I, I seen by example. I had a spiritual mentor that I had throughout the duration of my program, and actually I still meet with them to this day. Um, that helped me and showed me like this is what a man of God looks like and I admired that. Um, also our staff, I was able to you know watch closely and say okay this is what it looks like to to be a Christian, you know to serve, to give back, to help others and um, it, it really changed my mindset and my perspective of life. So what we do at City Team, we have a, a men's and women's residential programs focused on individuals coming out of addiction. We have a Turning Point and Youth Collective program, which is which focuses on helping individuals that are in homelessness or on the verge of homelessness get out of homelessness and provide stable housing so that they can transition to uh, permanent supportive housing. Uh, we also have our uh, City Team in the Neighborhood, which takes our mobile food pantries directly to neighborhoods in Alameda County. We have 19 mobile food pantries. Uh, we also provide uh, pop-up closets at those mo mobile food pantries as well, where people could also get food and clothing at the same time. Our volunteers are vital to City Team, so we depend on, on volunteers. We have large operations, we have um, our programs, we have a kitchen, we have pantries. Uh, we have a lot of opportunities for volunteering. And we depend on those volunteers. When our volunteers come, I see the joy that they have working and volunteering at City Team. They, they're able to give back, provide hot meals, uh, provide groceries for the community, provide clothing. I love that we're like in the middle of the city because people are right there. They can see us every day. And um, we have people that camp out in front of our, our buildings just like, when you're ready, man, we're here, you know, we're here to help you. Here in Oakland, we, I definitely see daily that people need hope, people need shelter, people need clothing, people need food, people need resources to be able to change their life. And that's what City Team's here for. We want to provide those, that shelter. We want to provide this food and clothing. 
Um, but those are just immediate needs. Our goal is to provide lasting solutions. And so that's where all of our city team programs work collectively to um, provide that lasting solution so that people can truly turn their lives around. These, um, these ministry partners really are vital to us living out our mission and vision, to be in a church not just for ourselves, but for the city and for the unconvinced. That's, that's what we want to be as a church. Now here's a question. What does Jesus want us to be as a church? That actually feels like a better question. Not, not what is our mission and vision for the church, but what is Jesus' mission and vision for the church? Now, wouldn't it be helpful if Jesus told us that? Wouldn't it be helpful if Jesus told us that? You guys are quiet. Wouldn't it be helpful if Jesus told us that? He does tell us that. He tells us in John chapter 17, uh, this is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in all of the Gospels. Jesus prays a lot in the Gospels. This by far is the longest one. And you know what Jesus prays for in John 17? You know what is the center of his prayer? It's the church. It is the church. Um, and so for the next three weeks, we're going to be studying John chapter 17 and asking this question, what is Jesus' mission and vision for the church? And what does it look like for us to be a church not just for ourselves, but for the unconvinced and for the city? Now, today we're looking just at verses 1 through 11, and in these verses, the very beginning of this prayer, we learn one thing. Here is what we learn. We learn the main purpose of the church. We learn, according to Jesus, why the church exists. And I'll give it to you in one word, actually. It is the word glory. Glory. This, this word shows up five times in the first six verses. And then in verse 10... Farther down, Jesus says, I am glorified in them, which he is saying, glory comes to me through the church. The main purpose of the church is glory. And it's not our glory. It's God's glory. There's a story of a, a famous conductor. His name was Arturo Toscanini. And he was conducting a very famous piece by Beethoven. And Apparently, it was this incredible performance. I mean, the musicians nailed it. The crowd kind of broke out in applause. And as the, as the crowd was applauding, Arturo Toscanini leaned down and he said to the orchestra, he said, it's not me that they're cheering for. And they were surprised because apparently he's a really proud person and always kind of taking credit, you know, for how good he was. He said, it's not me they're cheering for. And then he looked at him and he said, and it's not you they're cheering for. He said, it is Beethoven they are cheering for. He's the star. And the same is true in the church. Our hope is not that people would walk into this place or become a part of this community and say, you know, Res Oak is amazing. Our hope is that people would say, the God that Res Oak worships is amazing. He's the star. The main purpose of the church is God's glory. Amen. Now, what does that mean? I mean, doesn't that feel a little abstract to say the main purpose of the church is God's glory? 
What would it look like for a church to be a community that actually brought God glory? I mean, that really is the question that I want us to look at today. What would it look like? Well, it looks like a lot, but I think today what we see in this prayer is that Jesus tells us it looks like three things. And here's the first. It looks like a community of people who know Christ. So verses one and two. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, when we hear those words, eternal life, we tend to think, oh, Jesus is talking about living forever. You know, you die, but you don't die. You, 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 you live for eternity. Uh, Jesus is talking about something more than that. He's not talking about something less than that, but he is talking about something more than that when he talks about eternal life. There are two Greek words for the word life. One of them is the word bios. It's where we get the word biology from. It means physical life. The other Greek word is the word zoe, and it means satisfaction. It means a full life, an abundant life. See, bios is talking about quantity of life. It goes on and on and on. But zoe is talking about a quality of life. And you know what word Jesus uses here? He uses the word Zoe. He's saying, I have come to offer you something that can give you ultimate satisfaction in life, which is something every single person in this room is desperately looking for. And what is that? Well, look at the very next verse. I mean, just so we don't, just so we're not left wondering, Jesus makes it very clear. He says, and this is eternal life, this is Zoe, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says, you want to know how to have a full life, an abundant life? It comes in knowing God. And when, when the Bible uses the word know, it's talking about something very different than what we usually mean when we say the word know. The, the main word the Bible uses for the word know is the Hebrew word yada. And it shows up in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and it says this. It says that uh, Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant. The, the word for no in the Bible means sexual intimacy and relationship. And you say, well, what in the world? What in the world is that talking about? What is Jesus saying here? He is saying that satisfaction in life is found in knowing him and having him in your life like a spouse. Some of you are here this morning and you're saying something is missing in my life. And Jesus is saying, you will look and look and look until you find him. And I know some of you are very skeptical that that could actually be true, that God could actually give you a life like that, that that actually is what's missing in your life. But would you just think about your life for just a moment? Why, why is joy and satisfaction so elusive for us? We think, you know, well, if I just get a little bit more money, then I'll, then I'll have it. If I could just get married, then I'll have it. If I just have kids, I'll have it. If I could just be a little more financially secure, then I'll have it. If I could just have a little more status, then I would have it. And yet, it is like always just beyond our grasp. It, we, we taste it. We taste moments of it. We taste moments of joy, moments of satisfaction, and then it slips through our hands like sand, 
Now, why is that? Well, here, here's what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is always something we grasp at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job, but it has evaded us. Joy and satisfaction will always evade you in life as long as you look for it in the things of this world. And not just the bad things, not just the vices, but the best things. Career cannot give it to you. Marriage cannot give it to you. A relationship cannot give it to you. Children cannot give it to you. None of these things can give it to you. What can give it to you? Here's what Jesus says. Knowing God. That's what you were built for. And this is why we exist as a church. It's because we want to see people come into a living, breathing, personal relationship with the God of heaven and earth who can fill your life like nothing and no one else in this world can. And if you are here this morning and you have never experienced that, you would not call yourself a Christian, would you consider that maybe, just maybe, the reason you are here this morning is because God is pursuing you and he wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. Maybe you've been in the church your whole life and you know a lot about God. You, you even have adopted the morals and the teachings of Jesus. You know a lot about God, but you don't actually know God. There's a world of difference. You know what God is saying? He's saying, look, I've not just come to offer you truths to believe. I've not just come to offer you rules to follow. I have come to offer you a relationship. And maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian. And you've been one for years or even decades. You know what God is saying to you? I want more. I want more presence. I want more connection. I want more intimacy. The church is not just meant to be a community where people come to know God for the first time, but it is meant to be a community of people who are constantly going deeper and deeper and deeper and further up and further in in knowing God. And you know what happens when that happens? God is glorified. He loves it. He loves it when people draw near to him. A community of people who know him. Now here's, here's the second point. What does it look like to be a community that glorifies God? It's a community who knows Christ, but second, it's a community of people who are changed by Christ. So look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
They have kept your word. Jesus goes on to pray farther down in this prayer in verse 17 that we would be sanctified. What does that mean? That means that we would be different, that we would be changed. See, the church, it is a come-as-you-are community. It's not a clean yourself up and get your life together, and then you can be a part of this. It is a come-as-you-are community because it says anyone can know God. You know why? Not because we are good, but because God is good and because God is gracious. So it's a come-as-you-are community, but it is not a stay-as-you-are community. It is not a stay-as-you-are community. Our mission, our hope, is to see people's lives transformed by the gospel, including mine. Because all of us are a work in progress. You know, there's a, a famous story of Augustine, who is a fourth century African bishop. Augustine, before he became a Christian, he became a Christian later in life, he'd been very promiscuous before he became a Christian. Uh, in fact, some even say that he was a sex addict. And in his Confessions, which is one of the books he wrote, Augustine said, before he became a Christian, he used to pray, God, give me chastity, just not yet. That was Augustine's prayer. God, give me chastity, just not yet. And then he became a Christian. And several years after he became a Christian, he ran into one of his old mistresses out on the street. And she saw him and she began, she, she ran up to him. And when Augustine saw her, he turned and he, he started walking the other way. And she thought, oh, he... He doesn't recognize me. And so she calls out, Augustine, it is I. It is I. And Augustine turns and looks at her and he says, yes, but it is not I. It is not I. Th those ought to be words that every person in this room who calls himself a follower of Jesus ought to be able to say. None of us are works in progress or finished works, but we ought to be able to look back at your life and say, you know what? I am not who I used to be. God is changing me. I'm, I'm more patient than I used to be. I'm more gentle than I used to be. I'm quicker to forgive. Than I, I'm quicker to ask for forgiveness. I'm less self-righteous. I care about the poor more than I used to. We ought to be changed. We ought to be different. And some of us in this room, we wonder, what is change actually possible? Can I change? Can my friend change? Can my spouse change? Is change actually possible for me? Some of us have actually given up on change. If you're a Christian, you can never give up on change. You know why? Think about who was in this room when Jesus prayed this prayer. <laughs> Twelve of the most messed up people you've ever met in your life. The disciples. And here's what we know about them. Before Jesus died, they were constantly letting him down. They were constantly breaking their promises to him. They, they, they really began to follow him because they thought, oh, he's going he's gonna to be this military conqueror. And you, we're, we're powerless and we have no influence, but he's going to take us to the top. That's what they thought. They cared about themselves more than they cared about others. They were riddled with doubt. I mean, they're constantly questioning if Jesus really is the Messiah. 
They were prone to bouts of anger, and not just anger, but even violence. I mean, one of them cut someone else's ear off with a sword. (laughs) And when Jesus went to the cross, they were all cowards. They had no courage. Before Jesus died, they could not have been more messed up. After his resurrection, they could not have been more different. Here's what we know about them after the resurrection. We know that they were so courageous that they proclaimed Christ even when it meant excruciating death. Uh, We know that they were so selfless that one Roman emperor said, what is it with these Christians? I mean, not only do they care about their own poor, but they care about our poor better than we care about our own poor. They, They were so loving that they became the leaders of the most inclusive religion that the world has ever known. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free were all a part of them. And they were so merciful that they forgave even those who persecuted them. If change was possible for them, change is possible for us. If God can change them, he can change you. And you say, well, how does that work? Because I feel stuck. I mean, I want to change. But I don't feel like a lot is happening. How does change work? I'll tell you how it works. It works through knowing him. It works through relationship. I mean, let me just illustrate this for you on a human level. I have two little girls. And they love gymnastics. They love gymnastics. It is their, it is their sport. Now, as you would guess, you know, I was an incredible athlete as a kid. I'm sure you're all, you're all thinking that, you know. Uh, I played a lot of sports. Gymnastics was not one of them, okay? If you saw me do a cartwheel, you would think, did he just trip and fall? Like, what happened? I have come to love gymnastics. I, I, I watch Simone Biles' videos when I'm alone, okay? This is how much I've come to love gymnastics. I love gymnastics. You know why I've come to love gymnastics? Because of these two little girls that I've come to know and I've come to love. The more you know God, the more you are changed by God, the more you experience his love and grace, the more different you become. And it is so important to keep these first two points in order. We're talking about knowing Christ and being changed by Christ because you know what a lot of people think? They think, oh, if I change, God will love me. If I kind of pull myself together, make some moral modifications in my life, then God will have a relationship with me. If I change, then God will love me. No, friends, the Christian gospel says God loves you so that you can change. It says that change does not begin by trying harder. Change begins by knowing God, by having his presence and his love flood into your life over and over and over and over again so that you become like the God that you know. You become like Jesus. You become more patient. You become more gracious. You become more tender. You become more concerned about justice and the marginalized, and the vulnerable. 
when that kind of change happens, God is glorified. He is delighted. He is satisfied. And this brings us to the last point, actually. What does a community of people who bring glory to God look like? It looks like people who are known, who, who know Christ, who are changed by Christ, and then finally, community of people who are one in Christ. So look at the very last verse here, verse 11. I am no longer in the world, says Jesus, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus prays that, that we would be one in this prayer, not one time, not two times, but three times. It shows up again in verses 21 and 22. When you come into a relationship with God, when you know him, you know what God does? He brings you into relationship with other people who know him. Christianity is not something you are meant or can do alone. And this is why we say all the time, the church is not, a fa- is not an event to attend, but it is a family to which we belong. God wants to knit you into his family. We are to be one. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks, but let me just give you three very quick ways that we're to be one. We are to be one in, pos- in our possessions. Listen to this from Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. We are to be so united to one another, so radically generous with one another, that there is no one in this family who is in need. That's one of the beauties of the church, is that we care for one another. When people need help, we help them. We help one another. We're to be one in our possessions. But number two, we're to be one in our problems. So listen to Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. The the church is not supposed to be a country club for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. That every single one of us, if we know ourselves, you know what, no matter how put together we look this morning, no matter how polished we look, every single one of us walks through those doors stumbling. There are areas in our life that we keep from people, we we even keep from ourselves. And you see, the church actually ought to be the safest place to be honest, to walk in and say, you know what, I don't have it all together, to be honest about your problems, to be honest about your struggles, to be honest about your failures, because we are one in this. And here's the last way we're to be one. We're to be one in our faith. When Jesus prayed this prayer in John 17, there was a lot of diversity in that room. It's a whole other sermon, but you know, the disciples, they came from very different cultures and very different backgrounds. There's a lot of diversity in that room. And you know what? There's a lot of diversity in this room. There's socioeconomic diversity. There's racial diversity. There's political diversity. 
There's age diversity. We don't all live in the same parts of the same neighborhoods of this city. And this is one of the things that I love about our church. I've prayed for years that God would do this. And we still have a long ways to go. Please don't mishear me. But what a gift that God has given us to bring us into relationship with one another. Diversity is not just a box that we are trying to check. Friends, we are deprived to the extent that we are not in relationship with people who are different than us. And so when we are bound together, not by the color of our skin, not by the culture that we come from, not by the class that we are born into, but when we are bound together by faith in Christ, God is glorified. And you know what else happens? People who are not a part of this community start to look at it and say, what is happening over there? (laughs) I want to be a part of that. And I want to know this God. And so there it is, the purpose of the church. What is the main purpose of the church? It is to glorify God by creating a community of people who know Christ, who are changed by Christ, and who are one in Christ. But what is so incredible about all of this is how God actually created this community. How how did it all get started? Jesus tells us in verse 1, the very first thing that he prays, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. The hour has come. Jesus talks about the hour a lot in John's gospel. And what all commentators say is that whenever he talks about the hour, he's talking about the cross. What happened on the cross? What happened on the cross? Jesus lost his glory on the cross. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was bloodied. He was rejected. He was despised. Why would he do this? Why would he give up his glory like this? Why? Soren Kierkegaard who was a a Christian author and theologian in the 19th century, he wrote a short parable to tell us why. I'm going to close with this. He said, Imagine a powerful king who loved a humble maiden. She had no royal pedigree, no education, no standing. She was a peasant dressed in rags. But for reasons no one could ever quite figure out, the king loved her. But how, he wondered, was he to reveal his love to her? He could bridge the chasm of station and position that separated them. How could he bridge the chasm of station and position that separated them? He was a man of immense power. Every statesman feared his wrath. Every foreign power trembled before him. If he were to approach her directly, she would have no power to resist. He knew that all the power in the world cannot unlock the door to the human heart. It must be opened from the inside. So what then could the king do? Well, he could try to bridge the chasm between them by elevating her to his position. But if he brought her to his palace and she saw all the wealth and power and pomp of his greatness, then she would be overwhelmed. How would he know if she loved him and not just his gifts? And how could she know that he would love her still even if she had remained only a humble peasant? 
Well, there was only one way the king realized to reveal his love to her. And so he rose, left his throne, removed his crown, relinquished his scepter, and laid aside his royal robes. And he took upon himself the life of a peasant. He dressed in rags, scratched out a living in the dirt, groveled for food. And he did not just take on the outward appearance of a servant, but it became his actual life, his nature, his burden. And then Kierkegaard says this. He says, he became as ragged as the one he loved to win the one he loves. It was the only way. You see, the wonder of all wonders is that the God of all glory left all of his glory, gave up all of his glory so that he could have us. It was the only way. The New Testament says that Jesus did not just become human, but he actually became sin. He took our sin upon himself so that we could have his righteousness. And he took our shame so that we could have his glory. And he did it so that you could know him. So that you can have a relationship with the God who created you for himself. And wants to fill your life with joy and meaning and purpose and satisfaction. And who wants to come into your life and change you. Change you in ways that you can never change yourself. And who unites us together in him. And you see, friends, that is what this table is all about. This table is not for people who think that they have it all together. This table is for people who know that they don't. It is for broken people who need a broken Savior. There's one way to come to this table, and it is empty-handed. It is to say, God, there's nothing in me, there's no glory in me that merits your love and your favor. And so I cling to Christ. It's to come empty-handed. And you know what happens when you come empty-handed? God gets all the glory. He is the star. He is praised. And that is the invitation for all of us this morning. To come with empty hands. And to know God. And to know his love. And to know his grace. And to be changed. To be different. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he again thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you, eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant, which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins, drink this in remembrance of me. The New Testament says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this table. And I pray that as we come this morning, you would give us hearts that are able to receive all that you have for us. That you would help us to know your love and to know all that you have done to make it possible for us. And so would you meet us at this table as we eat this bread and we drink this cup? May we know the hope of Christ and the love of Christ and the power of Christ to change us and to unite us to one another. We pray in Christ's name.
Amen.